Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Three, Risk Analysis. Chapter 13. Wait, he had a face, but it wasn't on his face. It was raised up off his head like a visor. There was just galenic grayness, somber and glittering where cheeks and a nose should be. String or lines led from that darkness like nightmare whiskers, long and wild. Two shocked brown eyes rolled at me. His mouth and chin were normal, only his upper face was unattached, save for those desperate eyes shining out from glistering darkness. Soundlessly, he mouthed shouts, curses, I don't know what. He pantomimed closing the hatch. I pulled myself up and inside with a jerk. It was very tight in here. There was a handle set flush to the deck. I pulled and turned it, feeling it latch. Within seconds, sounds came through my deflating bubble. Engine noises, hissing from the mini Atmo exchange, guttural gasping from the pilot seat. They all increased as the pressure inside did, though air was still almost non-existent. I edged forward to help him don his helmet, a standard full suit one clipped to a stow ring overhead. But there were all these cables and wires in the way. I pushed at a few of them to get through, and the man swung at me, trying to block my hands. He choked out, flailing, punching. I punched back, connecting with a forehead that wasn't there, and a line plugged into a cranial socket above his left eye popped loose, whipping out of reach. What? Cables were attached to data ports all over his faceless face, leading directly to the ship's controls. He was a cyborg. It was during the preparations for abandoning Shady Lady and smuggling ourselves out system somehow that we hit upon a real plan. It was a collaboration with everyone chipping in from our various stations and then later from around the table, speculating, brainstorming, refining, until we had something we thought might work if... We were very careful. No one would be on this station if they didn't have a job or if they couldn't be trusted. Even the smallest, least important positions must have required extensive background checks on all applicants and a demonstrative need to exist in the first place. Since spy-type, undercover legends were out of our reach, 
only Dieter and I could safely use our own identities in there. Chris felt he could walk around safely enough if his ident data was injected into the station's systems, but anything that required a look into his past, such as getting a job or having a run-in with station security, also known as STASEC, a civilian police force, would be disastrous. John disqualified himself out of hand. Certain he, unlike the ML, would actually be in a localized database of territory-wide undesirables, though he still wouldn't say why. Assuming he was right, it seemed logical that Stina might be in there as well, simply because of the classified research they were doing here and the nature of her crime. If that were the case, they'd both be flagged by Stasek watchdog programs monitoring ident calls to the database just as soon as they were added to the list of on-station employees. Mavis's modifications meant that she would have been specially registered and vetted long before ever getting to Mylag Vernier, and such information would definitely have been sent on ahead of her arrival, waiting in one of those inaccessible security databases. She might or might not draw attention visually, but the watchdog would get her digitally, which was much worse. Since the engineer knew exactly what we needed, he had to go aboard. It would almost certainly be safer and better, though, if he was not alone. Should anything go wrong, he might need an ally, someone near enough to assist, but not so near as to be implicated in any security problems. That meant me. It took some careful thought, which is where most of the discussion came in. Since we had to have jobs, yet were also on a mission that might have to be carried out while performing those jobs, what exactly should those jobs be? Dieter, especially, required a position that allowed him to move around, since he would need the freedom to reorder, pick up, and deliver the jumper rape parts to Shady Lady. According to the personnel records we looked at, there was a low-level position in station life support opening up that seemed to be mostly about changing and repairing air filters around Mylag Vernier. That sounded like a good fit for the engineer under the circumstances. Even I could have handled such a job, but my engineering certification was not an advanced one, while even the lowly peons of this station were likely trained experts. The only really high-level certs I had were all in the field of civilian ship defense, and that did not bode well for my chances. So we talked and pondered. John didn't have a lot to offer, so he'd been killing time going through some old station backup files that included technical diagrams for specific systems. After a time, he interrupted our unproductive chatter to announce that he'd found a hull schematic for the area immediately surrounding our ship. Bringing it up on the Tri-D, he pointed out our exact location. Dieter studied it a bit, then dove into the records himself for a few minutes before coming up with a table of obscure information. Shady Lady was parked in Permashadow at the base of a large metal protrusion that housed machinery dedicated to emergency fire suppression. The ship sat upon a big square frame of sealed venting that was part of this same system. According to the tables of information, it rarely got visually inspected. The system had internal temp, vibration, and pressure sensors, all of which were deemed adequate for the job. 
If we had unlimited air, we could have hung out there indefinitely. That was reassuring, certainly, but his most arresting comment was that he thought he could circumvent all those automated sensors, clear out any gratings in the way, and manipulate the outer and inner coverings of the shaft. In other words, create an access hole. Without causing a detectable pressure drop? I asked, because it seemed pretty ludicrous, to be honest. Yeah, he assured, zooming into the diagram. We build our very own airlock. He proceeded to annotate the hull diagram with a crude, hand-drawn version of Shady Lady sitting atop the fire vent. He gave it portholes and a life preserver, which got some chuckles. He pointed to the station's hull underneath it. I can put a door right through here. Though I myself had never worked on an emergency fire venting system before, this one seemed pretty standard from what I understood about them. The idea of it was that should a big enough fire ever break out in the section of Mylag Vernier directly below us, airtight gates in the companionways, normally retracted and unused, would roll down and seal off the trouble spot. Then, valves or coverings on the vent would flick open, and Atmo in the affected area would rush out, carrying all the oxygen feeding the fire. This was considered the final and least desirable step in dealing with such a catastrophe, since it would also kill anyone in the vented area not wearing a pressure suit. Even so, it was a nearly universal safety standard employed by stations and larger ships throughout space. If our resident computer experts can track down the self-testing routine for the sensors in this particular vent, Dieter went on, we can delete it from the automated cycle. That way, when we physically disconnect them, the sensors won't be able to trigger a failure warning. In fact, monitoring controls won't even know they're there. Understand, though, the venting system itself will be unaffected. It's entirely separate from the monitoring sensors, which are only installed to detect vent blockage or other malfunctions. If a fire ever gets out of hand down there and the suppression system kicks on, this vent will still function as normal. That wouldn't be too good for us up here, would it? Mavis asked with understated irony. Not especially, he conceded. But messing with the sensors doesn't change that risk at all. In an absolute emergency, which venting is considered to be, we'd have trouble out here whether the sensors were active or not. W what do they call that on space stations again, Ejok? Um, a vent event? Yeah, that's it. Vent events have the highest override clearance of any other process, even surpassing human codes or security protocols. A fire in a can is a disastrous occurrence and it's treated as such. The hardware monitoring sensors we remove will not change that at all. Once we've done it, we can penetrate through the grating down to what looks like a tiny service recess or, or closet right here. He touched the diagram overhead and set it to rotating, showing the spot from different angles. Seems like a lot of work. John commented, though without discernible skepticism. Well, what else do we have to do? Chris posed, and no one had an answer. We studied the diagram floating over our heads. It spun slowly 
silently. Looks like we're going in, the captain stated. You're sure it's offline? Dieter asked Stina again as he held the wiring for the door's magnetic switch in his left hand and a cutter in his right. Yes, I'm sure. You keep asking that. She didn't sound hurt, but she didn't sound pleased. I'm just being thorough. Don't worry. I don't worry. You really need to share that trick, I commented over radio as I stood behind our engineer outside as he snipped a wire. I was there to lend a hand if he needed it, but he really didn't seem to. Focus, boys, Mavis said, her voice sounding tinny through my jawbone. We didn't have the materials to build an airlock, of course, so we needed to scrounge for them elsewhere. Since we couldn't go inside, we could only search upon the upper hull. And whatever we took, it had to be something that no one would come looking for. That meant trash. Building a lock out of garbage proved to be a challenge, not just for Dieter, but for all of us. Finding the stuff to begin with was less so, since there was always some kind of exterior work being performed by various departments, and any multi-day job entailed bringing out parts, tools, and assorted equipment that sat near the worksite until it was needed. Much of this stuff came packaged up in very strong plastic crates some of them quite large. A job replacing a bunch of sensor relays sitting a full quarter-turn counterclock from us was taking a lot of time. The project had been underway for at least two weeks already, without any end in sight. This we learned from decrypted station messages. The repair boss in charge of the work apparently didn't trust anyone with the job except her first shift crew so it was slow going. One day, dead in the middle of mid-shift, while the worksite stood empty, Dieter, Chris, and I went on a scavenger hunt. We found the new relays stacked in their crates near a whole X-band detector array that was wide open for surgery. Dieter thought two of these crates could be stacked together and sealed to make a one-person airlock. Carefully, we removed a couple of the replacement relays and set them off to one side. Then we tromped back with the empty containers, as well as some discarded plastic sheeting, thick and strong. Later on, we overheard the work crew wonder aloud, via the open channel, who had been at their worksite. They complained to their boss back on station that things had been messed with out there, and that some packaging was missing. Probably, they speculated, because another exterior crew had raided their site for trash so they could meet their recycling quota. After being assured that all the relays were still present and in perfect shape, the boss promised her crew she'd look into it in a placating middle manager tone that implied she'd do no such thing. Working both inside the ship and outside on the surface, Dieter put together a small chamber that was pressure-capable, for short durations anyway. He anchored it in place over the fire vent, using all of his very limited supply of molecular cement. 
The so-called hatch for the thing was made from two pieces of that plastic sheeting, with a zip slide opening in the middle. For pressurization, he ran a hose from this glued-down composite box up to Shady Lady's exterior atmosphere recharging port just overhead. A remote switch and sensor device activated either a charge or discharge from the Atmo exchange system on the ship, thereby pressurizing or evacuating the box. A readout aboard ship fed information called from our TAP data line into a program written by our computer experts. This so as to carefully monitor and match the box's air pressure with whatever the station's pressure sensors down below were showing at that exact moment. This number was usually quite stable, but it was good to be vigilant. A quick touch of the plasma cutter and a section of the grating was off. A slower, more careful cut with a vibrosaw, which might have been audible inside so we had Stina monitoring for any complaints about it the whole time, got the mechanism removed from the pressure-capable roll gate right inside. This represented the actual seal that would slide open during a vent event. Electromagnetic rails on either side snapped the roll gate open and closed, and that only happened in an emergency. With the locking mechanism now removed, it could actually be retracted and secured again by hand. Below this was a narrow shaft, dropping straight down like a well through polynium hull plating, structural reinforcements, and several insulation layers. A thin but moderately strong plastic cable was attached to a winch built from the pieces of a powerful little grinding tool that Dieter had been loath to repurpose. This was our elevator. A safety clamp attached the tool to a person's pressure suit harness. Then they could switch it on or off to roll or unroll the cable and thereby go up or down. There were two sets of static guiding baffles inside the shaft, meant to control air and combustion flow, but he uncoupled these and handed them up easily. Once cleared, the fire shaft was eight meters deep, ending at an inner roll gate, which was a copy of the one above. Directly below this was the maintenance closet. As soon as everything had been cleared, Dieter zip-closed the box and pressurized it. He opened the roll gate seal at his feet and lowered himself down the dark shaft until he hit the inner roll gate. The shaft was air-filled now, so he listened closely for a long time. Up on the ship, we listened too, through his suit cam. There were no sounds of movement beyond. After five full minutes of this, with him just hanging there, Dieter took out his vibrosaw. He cut through the gate's latching mechanism and rolled it back easily. Then he kicked out a grate cover at the very end of the shaft, which clattered onto a box below, and lowered himself down. Okay, I'm inside, he announced over a scrambled channel that SS2 had set up. On the suit cam feed, he was moving around too much for me to see anything more than a cramped, narrow space filled with supplies. Guess it works. Coming back up. Which he did. He used the grinder winch to rise into the shaft again, reattached the outer grating, and then rolled the gate closed. After this, he winched himself up to the gate above 
and climbed back into the plastic airlock on the surface. He disconnected the cable, closed the gate, and activated the system on the ship. In a minute or so, the engineer opened the zip slide in the plastic sheeting and walked back out into our shadowy spot on the upper hull. Though it had been a group effort, Dieter had been the real star of this show, and we all praised his hard work and ingenuity when he came back aboard. He was righteously exhausted and racked out immediately after a hot shower. This left the rest of us to ponder our next step. We had the vid from the engineer's feed replaying in the common room. This does look like the sort of place that gets worker traffic, I put in, swiping the air to stop the image, zooming in on a blurry electrical panel of some kind on the wall. We might drop right in on somebody, if we're unlucky. We can install an old-style PIR in there, SS1 stated. A passive infrared detector. We won't get any real details, but if there's movement, we'll know about it. Do we have one of those aboard? Chris asked, looking hopeful. Not as such, John answered, rather smugly, I thought. But I know how to make one from a Tri-D interface stylus. We have some in stowage. He pulled down a long list of ship stores and checked the location, then went amidships, rummaging around in one of the many small spaces where supplies were wedged in. He returned with a pen-like device that he immediately broke in half. He pried at it a bit and produced a tiny item from inside, hardly bigger than a rice grain. It just needs a radio transmitter. Won't that be easy for station security to trace? I asked. Only if they're looking for it and actually know what it means. All a security sweep would pick up is some very localized low-power static that comes and goes, like EMR bleed over from a cheap consumer device. The station must be full of that sort of thing. The PIR itself would only be keying off movement, not digital information, so the transmission shouldn't seem like anything but random noise. John declared the tiny device would transmit whenever its infrared sensor closed, that is to say, whenever it detected a temperature change in a very specific location. In this case, such a change corresponded to motion, and motion meant people. Placed in the closet below, it would be able to tell us when it was safe to go in. It took a little back-and-forth nonsense for SS1 to build his PIR, because the tools he needed were in engineering, and we didn't want to wake up Dieter while Mavis didn't know what he was talking about at first. Eventually, he had tiny parts and tools spread out on the table, and he carefully mounted the rice grain to a plastic clip the size of his fingernail. Stina seemed very put out by his commandeering of the table space, however temporarily, and retired to her bunk in a huff. All told, the device assembly actually went pretty quickly, and the radio receivers on the ship picked up the pulse just fine. John then found himself a little outmatched on the software side of things when he tried to write a script to have the radio band detector activate an alarm up here inside the ship whenever movement in the closet was detected. He finally had to ask SS2 to return and help, which seemed to brighten her mood a bit. Or not, it was hard to tell. She knocked out a usable program in just minutes, but spent another hour refining it. 
When the exact frequency and profile of the static pulse was detected, amidst the myriad of other radio signals that the ship's passive sensors were continually shifting through, it would get pushed to the very top of the notification priority list. From there, audible chimes were tied in, and a pop-up warning flag was set to slide into view over any holograms currently on display. Once assembled and tested, the PIR was only three centimeters long and weighed almost nothing. A bit of glue tape would hold it to a wall quite easily, and we had glue tape. Chris volunteered himself to install the device and suit it up. We all sat or stood around in the common room, Dieter was awake by now, and watched RML's progress over his suit cam feed. The engineer talked him through the simple pressurization procedure for the plastic airlock, which went without a hitch. Rappelling down the shaft in a pressure suit was also easy for him, as he apparently had had some covert ops training in the past. Using a grinding tool for a winch was clearly new, though. Inside the shaft, he confessed over calm to be making a heck of a racket as he descended. It worried him, but it turned out there was no one at the bottom to hear anything. Once he was in the closet, Chris didn't hesitate. He stood on a large canister of floor polish and stuck the PIR directly over the door, right near the ceiling. He then walked around inside for a bit to see if it worked. That wasn't easy with what little room he had, especially wearing the suit, but John confirmed we were getting a signal while a low bong sounded in the common room. Chris's return was easier than his descent had been, and he declared that it was just a matter of practice. Up top, in the makeshift airlock, he unclipped himself, closed the roll gate on that end until it sealed, and activated the Atmo exchange. Soon after, he was back aboard. Convoluted and seat-of-the-pants engineering though it utilized, Chris had just proven that the process was repeatable and reliable enough to get the job done. We could now get inside my lag vernier whenever we wanted to. About an hour after Chris's adventure, the bong sounded just like before. It went on for about two minutes, then stopped. It didn't happen again for almost a full day, and then for only about the same length of time. It seemed likely these were maintenance workers. When he'd been down there, Dieter hadn't inspected the door out to the wider station, so Chris had made a point of doing so. It looks solid, he informed us once we were on to the next problem. It has closed slats from top to bottom. I assume if the air is vented, these open as a matter of course. I didn't see any sensors on the door itself to detect when it's open, but that doesn't mean there aren't any. I did a search for that, Stina put in without looking up from the code she was writing. The lock is electronic and logged. Can you emendate data in that log? I asked. She nodded, still without looking up, still coding. Can you unlock the door remotely? She shook her head in the negative, eyes never rising, fingers swiping and dancing over her input plate, all very Stina-like. I can probably do it, Dieter offered. Me too, John put in. So, getting through the door and deleting any record of opening it were covered. Dealing with the ident sensors in the station proper, however, went way beyond your typical B&E techniques. What Stina had been so busy working on was this very next step in the process. 
It required two more days of close labor and creative thinking by both specialists, followed by a particularly scary data injection to force the automated corruption repair system in the backup network to pick up their changes and see them as valid code that needed propagating. They now had access to the station's personnel records, without actually having or needing official clearance of any kind. John acted like it could have easily failed and been spotted as an attack. Stina didn't comment. But to me, it all looked as smooth as silk. The next day, we put the whole thing to the test, soup to nuts. SS-1 and SS-2 put together valid ident accounts for our mission leader and engineer. This didn't include backgrounds or fictitious histories or anything like that, just their sensor profiles in the database for on-station personnel, both of them marked as being authorized for non-secure locations. That meant they could walk around the main companionways and go into the shops and other public places. The movement bong started sounding as soon as the grating at the end of the shaft popped open. It kept ringing the whole time the men were ditching their suits and unlocking the door. Stina turned it off eventually, though Mavis had to ask twice. Good luck, I said to Chris, who was exiting first, with Dieter right behind. Neither of them wore immediately identifiable clothing, and we'd made sure their visible gadgets and wearable tech were all generic-looking, at least to a cursory glance. The ident hack was the biggest concern for everyone, though, and after a second or two, our ML said he was opening the door. After this, they closed their comm connections. Such things, originating from inside the station's public spaces, could well be monitored as a matter of course. We were cut off from them then. We still didn't have real-time access to the data streams of Mylag Vernier, so we just waited. They'd agreed upon a short 20-minute excursion, just to get the lay of the land and try to pick up on the informal etiquette of how the residents of this particular station behaved while walking around in public. That might sound like an odd concern, but more than one covert agent Chris assured us, had been tripped up by local customs. Whatever the case, they didn't have trouble, nor did they pull anything cute, like shopping for souvenirs. At the 22-minute mark, we got a movement bong from the service closet. Stina didn't turn this one off until she was told to either. Chris called in a moment later. It went smoothly, he exclaimed quietly, but with excitement. No audible alarms and no guards popping up to indicate any silent ones. Great work, everyone. We're coming back now. Getting up the shaft was as simple as redonning their pressure suits, stuffed unceremoniously into the vent, and clipping on the pole cable attached to the winch. Within just a few short minutes, they were back aboard Shady Lady. Complicated though it all was, actual transit time for the two of them from closet to ship, was less than five minutes. It's nice down there, Dieter remarked as soon as his helmet was off. And no one batted an eye, RML added. I guess like with any big project, they have a lot of turnover. New faces don't seem to be unusual. How soon can Dieter and I get our personnel data on file with our backgrounds and such? I asked John. A day or two? It's pretty straightforward. And then we just climb down, 
walk out into the open and apply to human resources as transfers? I pressed. Yep. And the sooner the better, Chris put in, bringing down a recent update of arrivals to the station that he'd plucked from the backup records. We already had a couple of fast corporate security transit boats docked this past shift. Those will be the planners and coordinators sent on ahead to get on-station management ready for a total team takeover. He highlighted an ETA further down. Large personnel ferries are inbound, carrying officers, grunts, and civilian contractors. Once they get here, the real changes will begin. Maybe we shouldn't do anything until we see how that plays out, Mavis commented. Chris shook his head. Management shakeups are a good time to penetrate facilities and organizations. There's always confusion about who to verify things with and what new procedures are being put into place. I'd have to agree with that, I said, and Chris looked at me with, I think, surprised gratitude. The captain thought about it a bit, then conceded the point with a nod. John brought up a hologram representing a series of interconnected networks. We're also working on a viral crack to another system, he said, pointing to one highlighted in blue. Looks like the data pads and human resources have dual access with a network used solely by station security. I guess it's so any questions or comments HR has about an employee's criminal background will get appended to Stasex records as well. Once we're inside this system, we should be able to edit any data written to a person's Stasek profile. Do we need to? Mavis asked. Well, if the cops get curious about Ejok or Dieter, for whatever reason, it would be nice to have a heads up. Maybe we could even do something about it. And anyway, Stasek will have access to other networks. You never know what we might need. So, it was more work for the sensor specialists and more waiting around for the rest of us. Actually, the next couple of days were productive from a data-gathering standpoint, as we were able to deduce a pattern of usage for the maintenance closet below. Between the bonging alarm and some routine service reports pulled from the backup data, we learned that electrical inspections on the panel down there were carried out approximately one hour into each third shift. There were also some oddball entrances when supplies were picked up and dropped off, so there was a random element to be navigated too. Things were nearly ready, but we still hadn't determined what Dieter and I could do for cover jobs. Since we were just going in as ourselves, we had our full publicly acknowledged skill sets to draw from, but that didn't mean Mylag Vernier had any need of them. That opening with life support we'd seen before was now closed, but another one, fairly similar in the kind of responsibilities involved, had been posted by technical maintenance. Dieter certainly had the qualifications for it, and it specifically listed field work as part of the expected duties. In stationer terms, that meant he'd be working all over Mylag Vernier, seeing to systems such as electrical and data cabling, artificial gravity, lighting in the companionways and other public spaces, and much more. He'd be out and about, and often on his own. I'll apply for that, he said. I can do you one better, John offered with a grin. I'll mark you as being already hired. 
The notation will propagate back to the live systems within a couple of hours. You just show up at the right tech maintenance office on the designated date and tell them you're the new hire. He then made the necessary adjustments to the record with a few hand waves. Dieter's background makes that one easy, I complained while I sat there with them. I don't know what I can bring to the party. I have hands-on engineering experience, but only a basic cert. I'm a registered steward, as you know. Could that get us somewhere? Actually, Chris responded, your gunnery skills might be more valuable. What if we try to get you onto the forensic analysis team deconstructing the events of the fight? Stina, call up that interdepartmental memo you showed me. With a wave, she brought forth a list of names. Managers responsible for investigating what was now being dubbed the Jaybird Incident. She highlighted a mandate they had put forth the previous day. Oh, hey, I could do that, I muttered, studying the document. These positions all require certificates I don't have, but this one... And I tapped the air, making the words wobble a bit. My Class A license covers that. Here's a list of names and qualifications. Looks like they're already putting together a group. Hmm, they have a glaring hole. According to this, none of these people have any civilian class experience. And they know it too, the ML added, pointing to a posted position linked to the file. This opened up onto an urgent system-wide call for a consultant with both civvy gunnery and engineering certifications. It specifically stated that no one currently connected to the experimental team or its support staff was allowed to apply. They want outside eyes on this, I stated. But no one who was not already in 21611B, Chris emphasized, is marked for in-system sourcing only. I'm assuming they don't want to bring in any more strangers. We'll set you up as having been aboard one of the service vessels out at the jump point doing... Whatever, stewarding works. We then create some records showing you were already on your way to the station, transferring from your stupid job out there to another stupid one here, when this listing got posted. It would explain why you just so happen to be here exactly when they need you. You'll be able to step right in, and right on schedule. Heck, using your real name, you'll even get corporate contribution points to your valid record. They'll be doing background checks on any applicants. And that's where having a real identity comes in handy. A valid IDEM profile and a current cross-border pass. We would just need to place an older post and for a steward position here on station into the backups. Fake, of course. Along with other fake records of your work on the ship you're supposedly coming from. John, are we in the comm directory yet? Yep, SS1 replied pulling up a massive list of contact numbers. This is always updating and includes public contact information for everyone currently in the star system. Good, RML said, looking at Dieter and me. We'll create some new numbers, mark them as being for supervisors at your previous jobs, and have any calls for background checks or references redirect to here, where we'll give you glowing marks. Ejok. This admin forensic group will need to organize itself quickly, so you might be officially employed before team even takes hold. If this goes badly, I said quietly, thinking it over, my rep here in Moneyland will be shot. It always would have been if we were caught, Chris countered.
With this job, you would be playing a role, but you'll also just be you. And anyway, it's only until Dieter gets what we need. It's acting, Stina injected a little late, but with enthusiasm. Or boredom. Let's do it, I pronounced, after only a little pondering, mostly so I wouldn't seem overly enthused or bored myself. And I can go aboard if or when either of you need some help, the ML added. Mavis was up front in her seat as usual, but followed the conversation closely. No more than two people in the field at a time. I'm not sure half measures are the best approach here, Chris countered. Modern interrogation techniques being what they are, if one of us gets caught, we're all caught. It's sink or swim time. I'd like to be out there in case they need an extra pair of hands or eyes. It's a ship-related problem, the captain responded firmly. Chris opened his mouth to argue further, but then seemed to change his mind. Okay. We all looked at each other, I think genuinely surprised to have put a plan together at last. Chris then focused on the engineer and me. Looks like you guys are going to work. have been listening to Risk Analysis, a science fiction novel written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can contact me at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. You can also check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com and sign up for my newsletter, where you'll find exclusive content and early releases. This story is copyright 2016 by the author and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called i by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The theme for Risk Analysis is called The Inventor by Zach Beaver and is available on SoundCloud.com. Risk Analysis is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person, living or dead, nor any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care.